Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 21st episode of the Uncivilized Podcast. Uh, this is Artemis, your host, and today we have a very special guest, Malatha of the OIA, or the Organization for Indigenous Autonomy. How are you doing today? Pretty good. How are you guys doing today? We're doing pretty well. Thank you for being here. Yeah, of course. So, you and I have known each other since community college about a little over three years ago now, but I would say we haven't really gotten close into the last couple of months. Mm-hmm. Uh, I met you through some of your student work that you've been doing. Do you want to talk about that and the larger project you're working on? Yeah, so... Um... I think we sort of started, I guess, getting back in touch after uh, we did a residential school vigil for my student organization that's called uh, Tribe. Uh, Tribe is a traditional student organization for indigenous students that's based around basically, you know, going to college. That's sort of a time when a lot of people really find themselves. And if you're far away from your family and your culture, it's it's tough for you to rekindle that. So. Um, we found a tribe with the intent of giving a place for people that are indigenous to come, be in their community, continue learning about themselves and learning about other indigenous people and uh, sort of guide them through their education journey so that they don't kind of walk the wrong path. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. um, and and I believe tribe actually just got accepted. We just finished one of our big goals, which was a hard fight. We got accepted into what State University calls the Multicultural Center. So uh, we're going to have access to equal funding as the other uh, ethnic organizations on campus, you know, equal support. So it's going to be a lot better for those students. Awesome. And then so Tribe is kind of the youth wing of the OIA. Do you want to explain what the OIA is about? Yeah. So the Organization for Indigenous Autonomy is an organization that uh, descends from a couple of different political things I've done in the past uh, that I won't get into right now. But uh, the OIA officially started in August of 2020. That's when we started shaping it into what it would become, which is, you know, an organization which believes in original governance, original law keepers and, you know, original medicine bundles for indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere, uh, which is to say full sovereignty for indigenous nations, indigenous peoples, uh, apart from a colonial framework. That doesn't mean working together with a colonial framework. That means the ending of the colonial framework so that we may achieve our full sovereignty. Mm-hmm. Okay, right on. And so, as you're saying, you're using the term indigenous sovereignty, and you've called yourself an indigenous, indigenous autonomist before. What do you say differentiates that from other sorts of decolonial projects? Because sometimes I see decolonization as kind of just the changing of names or the changing of hands, mm-hmm. you know, putting, you know, the current existing structures and institutions into the hands of indigenous and other peoples to you is mm-hmm. that decolonization? Or like you said, it almost seems like it's the abolition of those institutions. Yeah, you can't. You cannot fix a system just by giving the victims of that system the reins of the system because the system was designed to kill the, the people. Just just because you exchange hands, it doesn't fix anything. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we don't like I don't care if there's a native president. I don't care if tribal sovereignty as it currently stands, you know, where reservations don't have to follow state laws. That's not tribal sovereignty. Um we believe in the abolition of the United States and Canadian governments, as well as the Mexican and, you know, other uh, governments south of the Rio Grande. But we sort of focus right here, right now. That's where the majority of our members are. But we advocate for the dissolution of those governments and for indigenous nations to take back their original lands and be the governors of their original lands, original people, you know, with our original languages in the original ways that our ancestors gave to us. Right on. And so is there a way for non-Indigenous people perhaps to relate to this in the sense of could you relate it to a label or an ideology from the Western tradition? The, it's it's hard to put something like that 
in a Western label because we exist outside of that context. You can't really apply Western labels to a belief system that predates interaction with Western, you know, culture. Um, you know, we have our own traditional ways of doing things, ways of governing lands, ways of community with our people that cannot be described in terms that are relevant to either the left wing or the right wing, you know, because at the end of the day, they are both wings on the colonial vulture that is chewing mm-hmm. at our people's way of life. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we best relate to groups like the Irish Republican Army or, you know, the Free Corsicans or, you know, other groups that are trying to maintain their sovereignty when they are being oppressed by a colonial power. But at the end of the day, our end goal is indigenous sovereignty in its fullest extent. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So you mentioned that, you know, it's the abolition of Canada, the United States, Mexico, and those south of the, the Rio Grande. And you say, but you're focusing here and now, but you do have relationships with organizations like across the world what is what are the, what do those cooperations look like in what organizations if you want to talk about that are you working with sure so we have a list of all of our endorsed organizations on the oia website it's www.organ.org i think it might be in the description it will be um but you know we look at different indigenous groups not just here but around the world because you really can't achieve a goal this great without support um, so, you know, we report, like I said, we support groups like the Irish Republican Army. And of course, there's like a hundred of them now. So, you know, we all have to figure out which one's the, the right one there. But mm-hmm. <laughs> um, we support like the Bosque National Liberation Movement. Um, we've done some support work for the ECLN. You know, we look at these different groups and we find ways to make those connections uh, simply because we can't have our eyes in every quadrant of this land right now. Sure. You know? Um, the end goal is to get OIA chapters, you know, all across the continent, the Western Hemisphere. Uh, but obviously, it takes a lot of groundwork. And like I said, the majority of our membership that's doing active work is here or, you know, north of the pencil line in Canada. So Okay. Okay. And so, and the concept of relating it to to labels, there's, you know, the term people call themselves decolonial, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist. Would you say those are labels that are somewhat sufficient? Or do you think those are simply parts of what defines indigenous sovereignty and autonomy? I think that it's it's certainly a part of it um, because, you know, we do have to reject colonialism and imperialism in its forms. But also there is more to it than just rejecting it. There's actively overthrowing it. And then what comes after that, Mm -hmm. Um, which, you know, those are the, the things that come after that. When we talk about original medicine bundles, when we talk about original governance of our land it's not describable through the lens of English. It's not describable through the lens of European languages because you lose so much context. Our languages are designed around very certain things. Mm -hmm. Um, It's hard for me to translate belief systems that are of those peoples back to you because English just doesn't have that it doesn't understand. It doesn't have the context. Yeah, it doesn't have the context. Okay, Um, yeah. It doesn't have the meaning to those words, you know? Mm -hmm. So... I think, yeah, it's a big part of it, but also there's, it's just sort of like stepping stones, you know? Okay. And so I think maybe people are interested in this because it seems to be the crux of this. In what way do you or the OIA define indigenous or indigeneity? Is it a cultural or is it a blood category? And I know you used kind of three, mm-hmm. three notions of what, in, or categories of indigeneity. Do you want to kind of define that? So the way that the colonizers have set it up for our continent is that there's three categories of indigenous peoples. And you can, you can fit into all three categories and you can fit into one category. You know, you can fit into a mix. 
Um, but there is political indigenous status, which means you can enroll in a tribe, um, typically federal or state. Uh, they don't really care about unrecognized tribes. But you could also be ethnically indigenous, which means, in a sense, you are by blood indigenous, you're indigenous presenting, whatever it may be. Uh, there's also indigenous culturally, which means your main primary culture is indigenous. Um, you don't like there are I know so many people that are culturally indigenous, ethnically indigenous, but can't be politically enrolled indigenous because the colonizers set up arbitrary means in which you enroll in a federal government tribe. Mm -hmm. um, I know plenty of people that are just politically indigenous and they're not ethnically indigenous and they're not culturally indigenous. Mm -hmm. and, and, and the problem is, is that, you know, we should focus a lot on the cultural aspect and not the political aspect because at the end of the day if you just have political indigenous status but you're not applying the belief system of our ancestors uh, or living an indigenous way of life then it it sucks because you are typically the speaker for indigenous people those political groups um federally recognized tribes you know these puppets of the united states government and the canadian government with their indian act tribes they are the speakers for us and in a lot of cases, they are not, you know, in their cultural ways. They reject their cultural ways in a lot of cases. Uh, for instance, you know, the federal government recognized a tribe in the southeast called uh, Porch Creek, and they're a Muscogee people. Um, and once they got federal recognition from being a state tribe, the first, you know, couple of steps that they did was they found a ancient creek burial ground and they built a casino over it. And then they disenrolled a bunch of people that started speaking out against it so that the, you know, the corrupt tribal government could have access to the funds. They wanted to make money off of the casino, which was like, it's such, it's symbolism, right? It's literally like you are choosing colonialism over our ancestors, quite literally, like you are fucking making money on their dead bodies, you know? Um, so, I mean, yeah, that's, those are politically indigenous people. They don't give it a, a they don't give a shit about the culture at all. Mm -hmm. They don't care about anything except for their own lining of their own pockets mm -hmm. um and i know that's kind of long-winded but that's you know the three categories in a nutshell okay and so how does the oia because i see there's a few kind of labels that are used mm -hmm. uh, including freeman and things like that mm -hmm. so what are kind of those categories that you know that for the oia being indigenous only organization yeah. how would you define indigenous in that sense so we have open enrollment for indigenous people of the western hemisphere uh freedmen uh, Latino slash Hispanics with indigenous ancestry and Pacific Islanders. Uh, typically, our definition by by law says anybody that it lives within a area. If you are an indigenous person of an area that is occupied by the in the Western Hemisphere, if it's occupied by a non-indigenous power, which is to say places like that's why we include Pacific Islanders because you have places like Hawaii. Um, which are occupied by the American government, which is in Washington, D.C., which is on our land. You know, we have a unified struggle in that. Mm. Um, indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere is pretty, I mean, it's pretty open. You know, you are a person that is indigenous that comes from anywhere between Boston and Patagonia, you know, anywhere from the tip of Alaska, Greenland, all the way down to the bottom of Chile. Uh, Latino slash Hispanic with indigenous ancestry. There is a lot of people that are identifying as mestizo or hispanic latino etc and they have indigenous ancestry and they're more interested in reconciling with that it's almost a different experience because if you live in mexico but you are indigenous you have a much different experience than if you're a mexican-american who's trying to reconnect with those roots mm -hmm. um 
freedmen are people that were uh, descendants of African slaves that were uh, enslaved by the federally recognized uh, five civilized tribes. So the Choctaw, Chickasaw, Seminole, Muscogee, uh, and Cherokee of Oklahoma. Uh, and then all those tribes after they were, they, I mean, you, they had to force the tribes to give up their slaves. So after the tribes were forced to give up their slaves, uh, they signed treaties saying we're going to give freedmen citizenship and equal rights. And then they reneged on all of that. So those people, you know, they shed blood and sweat working for those tribes to get that indigenous status. And it was taken from them mm -hmm. by the tribes. Uh, so we have open lines of communication with uh, a couple of freedmen groups, and they're just as indigenous as we are. Gotcha. Right on. And so if this is something you want to air, if it's one of those grievances you do or don't want to talk about, can you explain, because you're kind of touching on it, the conflicts that occur within the indigenous peoples of the occupied United States, the especially between unrecognized state and federally recognized, because you and I have talked about this, the, mm -hmm. the numerous intersecting conflicts that go on. Oh, yeah. And are there, and there's that basically at the foot of colonialism's divide and conquer strategy? Sure. So, you know, we know that the federally recognized tribal system is essentially the descendants of natives that signed roles or treaties or something of that nature. And they were, the treaties weren't honored by chance, like to say, but they were um, set in motion. So, you know, relocation, like for my tribe, Choctaw Nation of Oklahoma, we were relocated from Mississippi to Oklahoma. And we signed allotment rolls called the Dawes Roll. And people who didn't sign were not allowed to enroll with the tribe. They were just totally dissipated. Um, and, you know, our tribe moved to Oklahoma and we became a federally recognized tribal government. And we didn't get to elect our own chief until, like, I want to say almost 1950. So you have to look at the federally recognized tribes and you have to realize that the United States government had a direct hand in implementing who was going to be your chief, who was going to be on council. And they gave us a system of governance in those federally recognized tribes that does not reflect in any way, shape or form our original governance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they got rid of clan mothers. They got rid of having, you know, the the top warrior or the top medicine man or top medicine woman being a leader for us. They got rid of, you know, big chief. They got rid of all these different essences and they created these federally recognized tribes. Now, there are groups of people that are from indigenous communities that had what we call paper genocide, which is to say the settlers wrote them off out of mm. history, right? Okay. Um, you know, I don't want to mention anyone by name, but I know various people that are members of East Coast tribes. I descend from an East Coast tribe called the Meharan tribe of uh, North Carolina. And what happened to them was a lot of them were married into black or white families and the government as as those tribes became christianized you know through forced missionary work the government started writing them off as black or white as a means of saying we've erased their indian identity we've gotten rid of the bad parts that we wanted and now we can treat them as whichever category they fall into mm -hmm. and in that sense now you see all these groups these people that descend from like so like my paternal tribe, the Meharan tribe, they're coming back and they're restarting the tribe and they're bringing back the culture and stuff like that. Huh. But the federally recognized tribal citizens and governments don't like it because, number one, you know, a state recognized tribe becomes a federally recognized tribe. That's more money the BIA has to throw at someone else. So it takes from everybody else. Right. It kind of makes you feel like you're competing with everybody to get funds. Uh, number two, they develop these ideas that just because someone is 
not a descendant of a federal tribe or their tribe was eradicated through paper genocide, suddenly they're not native. So, you know, we have the Lumbees, which is probably the biggest state recognized tribe in that area. A lot of federal natives will just call them anti-black racial slurs because they they just they don't want to validate Lumbee identity. Mm -hmm. Um, They do that for a lot of East Coast tribes. And that's just because they have African admixture. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 ridiculous. So, you know, all these federal recognized natives, not all federal recognized natives, obviously, because I'm federally recognized, but like the but the government or the, certain government or factions people that it. fall into that okay. sort of I- identity. It's like it's like identity politics in a sense, because like they yeah. feel like they have a monopoly on being indigenous. OK. And they entirely eradicate people that aren't federally recognized experiences mm-hmm. you know is there is there conflict between different federally recognized tribes or is it mostly directed from the federally to the state and unrecognized there is um, in more modern times like tribes will become federally recognized and then other federal recognized tribes get mad because so there's two ways that a tribe can really get federal recognition either the bia does like they call it like a research report and they determine that that tribe still exists mm-hmm. or by an act of legislation which means the United States government passed an act saying we now federally recognize this tribe. And federal recognized tribes that were uh, given that status through like the BIA research mm-hmm. hate it when legislative action is taken to recognize a tribe. Do they think it's because it's almost negating what they had to go through in some way? Or what is the source of that? It's mostly that they... It's, 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 it's literally against each other. You know what I mean? Like, they are upset that mm-hmm. their community had to be validated by the BIA through what they assume is like a big investigative resource. And the other community just got it because typically you do legislative um, recognition of tribes when there's like either big protests or there's like big events that make it happen. Uh, I know the Nanzaman tribe of Virginia is a tribe that got that. Porch Creek, which I just talked about, is a tribe that was legislatively recognized. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, but typically speaking, though, the majority of the hate that comes from a lot of federal recognized tribal citizens go towards state tribes or unrecognized tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a big that's like a central issue in Indian country. It's hard for you to see someone post about like a lumpy powwow or something and not see like racial slurs being thrown in the comments by federal recognized natives. It's yeah. disgusting. Okay. And is that is that a almost is it a coping mechanism? Is it like a trauma response? Is is that what the is that what fuels a lot of the conflict or is it because they've internalized colonial values? It's, it's internalized colonialism because a lot of the people that do that stuff um like I said they feel like they have a monopoly on the indigenous experience just because they have federal recognition. Mm. At the end of the day, a lot of people that get federal recognition or that join tribes that are fairly recognized, they will only join for benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, I know a lot of people that are great that are in federal tribes that are really traditional and, you know, they're learning their ways, but I also know an equal amount, if not more people that like you go on my tribe's Facebook page, you look in the comments, where's my money card? Where's my money card? Hey, I need this. Hey, I live in Texas. Can I get this program? And mm-hmm. if all these, it's, it's just politically indigenous people. They're not culturally indigenous. They're not ethnically indigenous. It's just people with a status card that think they're owed something. Mm-hmm. And they are mad that they don't get enough benefits from the federal government that they start attacking state recognized tribes who want to have access to things like IHS, which is Indian Health Services. 
uh, or want access to, you know, grant money so that they can build up their communities and things of that nature. And they get they get mad about that type of stuff, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really disheartening. Yeah, because it's it, it's you've talked about this passing legislation. I find it interesting. People talk about, you know, stolen, not conquered. Mm-hmm. Right. Or they're like, oh, just deal with it. It's in the past. But, the you know, it is the law of the land includes treaties that are made. Mm-hmm. And so when the U.S. either allows you know, settlers, mm-hmm. uh, historic or present, mm-hmm. uh, to engage in colonialism or the theft of land, or the U.S. itself does so on, on behalf of corporations or whatever. Right. It's breaking its own laws because right. it established those law. The treaties are law are the law of the land, mm-hmm. right? So it's funny because even by the U.S.'s own standards, it is engaging in illegal practices. Oh, yeah, you that, know that's the that's the basis for why we operate. You know. Uh, I'll touch on it again. You know, the supreme law of the land, as per the Constitution, is the Constitution, laws made pursuant to it, and treaties signed. Um, every treaty that the United States has signed with indigenous nations has been broken. Same thing goes for Canada. Every treaty that they've signed with their indigenous nations has been broken. Mm-hmm. These are relationships that are supposed to be sovereign entities that are equal on and sharing land. Yeah. Right. And I think movements of the past from indigenous people have been like, look, we are upholding our end. Why aren't you upholding yours? Mm -hmm. We are at the point where we're saying we've given you guys more than enough time to figure it out. And you have chosen not to do 500 years of it. 500. 500. Yeah. yeah. 529 years. We've been under illegal colonial occupation. We've given you 529 years to figure something out. You've not made any steps in progress mm-hmm. and we are not, we're not, we're not willing to negotiate anymore. Yeah. You know, cause it's almost because in the context, and I hope I'm not speaking a line is like when you, when you make a compromise in regards to your own way of life, that's a loss. Mm-hmm. Cause you shouldn't have to do that. That applies across the board. Anyone when yeah. for that is, or people kind of, it makes me think of conversations I've had about Roe versus Wade, right? People like, we need compromise. We need discussions. Like having compromise about rights. Right is a loss that you have ceded ground to people who are trying to take those rights, whatever they are from you. Right. Right. And that obviously applies just to the issue of indigenous autonomy and land. Right. Right. So, and when people kind of, cause I, I, I've had conversations with these, with people that are just like, well, you know, it's in the past or it's, you know, it's, it's whatever they have the reservations. I was like, but the reservations, first of all, are not what treaties were supposed to be. Cause a lot of the time, you know, they're bringing these treaties to people that don't speak English right? and they're telling them this is what it is. And then of course it's the exact opposite of whatever they're told. Right. But the, 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 the reservations that exist now are a small percentage of what the original treaties ever promised. Oh yeah. And they're not even where they were mm-hmm. originally. Right. Cause right. people are like, Oh, they got moved. Right. Most like, people, yeah. yeah. They got moved once. Right. But no, it's from my understanding, they got moved. A lot of tribes got moved several times. Multiple times. They went to their originally, okay, you're going into, location a mm-hmm. right but then someone's like oh well there's actually something there that i want and then the federal government's all right then to be to see some try move several times right how many people are lost in between those movements exactly right um, people the, people think trail of tears when there's really in my mind almost several of those types of events and, and you see a lot of groups and there's stories all the time of people that were walking the trail of tears for instance from any multiple tribe where they would just sneak off from the path and run off and eventually those people a lot of those people went and started uh their own tribes which became unrecognized or state recognized oh okay so you get a lot of people that shared very similar experiences as our ancestors 
and they went off to go start their own thing to try to rekindle what they had in the homeland and it continues on with that cycle of colonial violence where they're not validated by um, their original communities uh, they get legal action tribes love to sue people that start those types of tribes um really there is a the chickasaw nation of oklahoma had a lot of legal problems with this group called the uh it's like a chickasaw group in south carolina descend from chickasaw people that basically i think they fled colonialism or they were traitors or something of that nature and they started a band in south carolina and the chickasaw nation was mad because they feel like they should have that monopoly on being chickasaw and so they made a compromise by that tribe still gets to exist they're going to sue any other chickasaw tribes that pop up but now there's something called like the chickasaw heritage thing that you can join you can become a registered member of the chickasaw heritage fund or some shit oh <laughs> um and you get a newsletter but wow yeah um it's 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 like in our culture we were always taught that if we have to give up something to make other people feel comfortable we should do that and i feel like we've gotten to the point where like where if i have 100 apples and i've already given up 99 and a half apples and you still want my other half the apple no <laughs> like you don't there's no choice in that i have no i'm literally back we're backed up against a corner like a wall there there's nowhere else we can go but direct attack like i have yeah. to protect myself i have yeah. to protect my family uh-huh um i have to do something because mm -hmm. i i I can't let my kids grow up in a world like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I can't let them see what's happening to our people and our culture. And it's, it's, I don't even know. I can't even mm -hmm. really describe it to you. You know what I mean? Sure. So moving kind of from the, still within the realm of history, but connecting it back to the OAA, yeah. what would you say the relationship is between your organization and mm -hmm. historic organizations like AIM, American Indian Movement? Mm -hmm. is, would you say OAA is a sort of descendant or spiritual successor, or is it more of a rupture? And then in addition to that, you have a patch that says something like since 1491. Mm -hmm. Instead of saying it like that, or do you think it's more of the natural extension of that ongoing struggle since first contact? Yeah, sure. So the American Indian movement is still very much active. Um, and I think I took a lot of, I took a lot of like ideas from the American Indian movement because one of the first things that sort of radicalized me was Wounded Knee 1973 and seeing these people standing up to um, the president of the Oglala Nation. He was a dictator that was pretty much inputted by the United States government. Hmm. Um, he was literally rounding up political rivals, people that wanted to run against him in the elections, and he was strong arming them with his goon squad, uh, Guardians of the Iguala Nation. Um, you know, and that's when they went to Wounded Knee armed to the teeth and they said, Hey, you need to stop fucking doing this to our people. And by the time they got there, the federal government already had sent troops. You mm -hmm. know, they were prepared for war with our people. I've heard people described as like in almost like, like Vietnam at home. Oh, yeah. I've heard it described oh, yeah. in that sense because the equipment that's brought in, this isn't, you know, when people think about maybe uh, certain pipeline defenses, you see mm -hmm. a militarized police, but this is the military. military. Yeah, they had APCs there, snipers. Yeah. They had uh, military assault planes on standby that were doing flyovers. Um, President Nixon was ready to exterminate aim at wounded knee like go to war like, yeah that is he was war. ready um and the fact of the matter is is that aim initially started as a means of combating police brutality and getting the united states government to uphold their end of treaties and i think that one of the downfalls of aim was that it was 
Um, it was too decentralized in a sense that every chapter had their own ideas and none of them really got along. And the Grand Central chapter kept getting infiltrated by feds that they all started distrusting each other. And before you know it, you have original AIM members going out and killing each other. Um, there's multiple, you know, uh, murders that are unsolved that, you know, it's highly implied that other members of AIM are killing. What is the, the, the really notorious popular one? She was shot in the head. She was shot in her, in her head. Um, they thought that she was probably a government mole, even though it was more likely that she was killed by a government mole. Yeah. Um, Which is, I mean, that echoes to me, the Black Panthers, right? Sending fake letters between each other. Mm -hmm. Like, like the FBI destabilizes. It creates a sense of distrust because if you're built together on solidarity that's what holds you together mm -hmm. you fracture that and there is no organization anymore the it's big, very similar to me the big benefit is that all of my people are well vetted and further than that you have to be so culturally knowledgeable to be able to be within our circle mm -hmm. you know i'm not putting up chapter leaders that are just chapter leaders because they are from a certain place or they are this ethnicity that is a portion of it Mm -hmm. But I'm putting up people that can tell me something new about the culture that actually know deep things. Uh, we're getting to a point where we are going to start looking at hosting our meetings in traditional indigenous language. Oh, wow. Um, you know, because, yes, there are people that are knowledgeable of those things and have access to those things. But some of the stuff that we know about our culture is so deep there's no Wikipedia articles on the stuff that we talk about. Mm -hmm. There's no book you can read. These are things that are passed down from people's grandparents to their cultural children to their grandchildren. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think the aim was good for what it was at its time, but it didn't go far enough. Okay. Essentially. Okay. So how would you compare the conditions of aim struggles and the struggle now, which because people say, and, you know, because that's a movement that I think it kind of gets overlooked, but it's still in the context of the 50s, the 70s mm -hmm. movement of, you know, you see um, people of color of all of all stripes kind of making these mass organizations that are against police brutality sure. and seeking, uh, you know, respect. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, you know, I think of Malcolm X is, you know, going to the to the U.N. and trying to seek recognition for the what is a genocide. Did the did AIM ever do that as a side yes. question? Yeah, they did do, they that. Did do that. So yeah. I see a lot of that. So and some people say, well, the, the struggle of the 60s is so much different now. And the, it, we can't even look to that for inspiration. But like you say, you take a lot from that. Yeah. So because, you know colonization obviously hasn't ended so the struggles seem to be very similar so what would you say are si what is similar and what is different now from the time of aim i think the important thing to remember is that to our culture you know we take everything from our ancestors and our forebears you know we are we are our grandparents grandchildren like if i was to introduce myself traditionally to you you know i tell you who my grandma is who my grandpa is where they're from what clan they're in yeah so I can't divorce myself from indigenous activists of old because we are one continued line of people fighting for our right on our land. Um, the difference between the struggles back then was that, you know, they were fighting for legislative equal rights. So, you mm -hmm. know, we got the, uh, the ending of residential schools was in that era. We got the uh, Native American uh, Freedom of Religion Act. We got NAGPRA, the Native American Grave Repatriation Act. Mm -hmm. That was all legislative. Our current struggle is actually implementing that stuff and, and yeah. recognizing that we still have 
tons of issues that the federal government nowadays the federal government just doesn't say anything about it mm -hmm. um or they try to gaslight us into thinking it's our fault for the things that are happening um at the end of the day like i've said we've given people so many opportunities to make it right mm -hmm. that we are just going to make it right ourselves mm -hmm. so um, you know the struggle is a lot different like i'm not facing a lot of the issues that aim faced back then sure but also keep in mind i live in an area where there's not a lot of indigenous people and the majority of the conflict that i come into is from either like microaggressions like people just having off ideas about native people from like spaghetti westerns or something <laughs> uh, or being called like a mexican you know that's like what i face here but if i yeah. lived in minneapolis if i lived in sioux falls rapid city if i lived somewhere in the southwest if i lived in canada my life might be a whole lot worse yeah. So I come at it from a position of privilege in a lot of ways. You know, I'm disconnected from a lot of that stuff. But when I see those things happen, I can't just be quiet. You know, that's my people. Those are my kin. I have to stand up for it. Yeah. So things haven't really changed. Yeah. It, just because a law was passed doesn't mean things are changed. Sure. Right. Because as we know, again, treaties are law. And we saw, you know, yeah. right? just because there, there's something in law where the U.S. or other bodies respect that law. 99% right. of the time, unless it means they can get tax money mm -hmm. or throw a dangerous person they in their mind in prison right. or kill them, mm -hmm. they want it for shit. Well, I mean, like, I just talked about the Native American Freedom of Religion Act. Like, so eagle feathers are very important in most indigenous religions of North America. Mm -hmm. If I want an eagle feather for religious purposes, and that's foraging, you never kill an eagle, it falls off it's a gift from the creator it just falls off of the eagle or something like that you have access to it um or if there's a dead eagle uh, things of that nature so we're not hunting eagles by any means so it's interesting to me that i have to be both a federally recognized tribal citizen and i have to apply for a freedom of religion permit to get that eagle feather a permit i have to have a permit to acclimate my freedom of religion so that i can but you have a lot of freedom now you get you need a you need someone to tell you you are allowed to practice your religion exactly exactly um it's it's a democracy by the way this is the democracy we hear so much about this is the supposed melting pot america is the land of opportunity for all peoples yeah so i'm going to skip ahead some of my questions here because they seem more relevant is there a single or are there several misconceptions about indigenous people on the so-called occupied territory mm -hmm. Uh, that you find yourself confronted by, particularly from colonizer people, and then after that, become more specific, maybe, is there a common mistake of non-Indigenous activists, both in regards to working with Indigenous people and not? Sure. So I guess I'll break it down like this. Um, one of the things I think about a lot is a critique to the work that we do, because, you know, like I've talked about with you, I guess I can break it down. I said it might be a question later. Um, mm -hmm when we look at what we want for let's say post-colonial turtle island you know canada us mexico um we're looking at confederacies that are built up based off of similar ethno-cultural groups so like for me you know choctaws chickasaws seminoles adistos pds muskogee creeks seminoles you know all in our original homelands confederated all of our tribes still independent but a confederacy which can advocate for us on a grander scale mm -hmm. uh, so that our lands are governed in a, in a very similar traditional way um those different groups uh but all across turtle island and all across the western hemisphere so essentially 
every piece of land is governed by the original inhabitants of that land in the original way in which we intended it to be governed. Yeah, so again, not changing of hands like the southern eastern states right. are going to become it's governed by yeah, those tribes. I'm not going to become the governor of Mississippi. <laughs> we're, we're, we're looking at finding ways to... And, and it's it's hard to say state, right? Because when you think of state, what context do you think? You think of the colonial context of what is a state. Mm-hmm. When I say state, I mean it in the simplest of terms of a independent body body that is governed by a people. Yeah. You know, not a nation state. Yeah. Some European it, it's not like, yeah, in that context, you know, and it's, it's so hard to describe because you would have to understand what the traditional way of each individual, because every single piece of land was governed differently. Yeah. Because every piece of land needs something different. We have so many different biomes on this continent, mm-hmm. you know, North and South America combined that foster a type of different relationship. Yeah. And that goes back to your issue of language, right? Like right. English, it does not come out of the, uh, the Turtle Island or unoccupied American context, right? Mm-hmm. So there might be terms in your language or other languages that can better describe that that, that just are not accessible to oh, the yeah. English speaker, oh, right? Because yeah. again, the you know languages are an expression of a cultural background mm-hmm. in which English is a, for lack of a better term, a colonizer language, right? That sure. cannot express what you're trying to get at. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's kind of what we look at for the continent would be basically a large union of all those different groups and not in a sense of like big federal government, but like <laughs> uh, we talk about like a first nations union being like just a central body where there is um, a committee that deals with internal problems because tribes will have internal problems. We just talked about how federally and state recognized tribes are. I guarantee you, if we arm the federal tribes, how they are now, there will be like a genocide. Like those people are unhinged. Uh, but you know, a central body that says, hey, you know, if you're having this issue here, let's find a common solution. Let's employ traditional means of solving this, mm-hmm. but also providing a unified defense against colonizers. Because, you know, if this land was to topple, there would be a big response, you know. Yeah. Um, so but I guess that's more down the line. Um, mm-hmm. We're not there yet. Yeah, we're not there yet. We're at the the ideology spreading phase. Yeah. But uh, but yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of got away from the original question. No, you're fine. So, like, what are some of the misconceptions that you find? So, you talk. Maybe you want, if you want to frame oh, the form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Of mis of you know that was still a, you know it's a question I was going to ask anyways, but you talked about microaggressions. That that's what I guess what I was getting at is that people think that our movement is a monolith, mm-hmm. which is to say we are all plains Indians that ride around on horses and have teepees, and like America's just gonna be a big nomadic whatever. Like, and they, they, they question why we need to be so specific with ethnic ethnicity. Cause when you hear ethnicity, it's always sort of like brings up red flags, like reactionary or, you know, race, like some type of ethno nationalism thing. Yeah. But, but at the end of the day, it has nothing. It's, it's solely that we are finding our culture and how to take care of our lands specific to that land. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't apply a general policy to all of this different land because it's all so different and everything needs something different Mm -hmm. all of our cultures are so different we can't have a unified like there is pan-indianism which is like a cookie cutter native identity Mm -hmm. but each individual culture needs something different right um and that's a big problem that we face with people is that they assume that we are like fascist or reactionary because we 
implement those differences when at the end of the day we are just doing what's best for our cultures and our land so you do you know you get called a fascist for trying to overturn what colonialism took exactly. really and of course the people that are call you then like we've talked about our communist party members are like oh you want to you want to go back to the past yeah. it's like yeah not non-colonialism right and if you look at like so like i hear a lot of comparisons to africa a lot of people say well it's going to look like africa well look at africa understand that a bunch of Europeans sat down one day and they started drawing arbitrary lines along rivers and mountains and they completely divided Africa into a bunch of states that are filled with different groups that had past wars or conflict with one another mm -hmm. and that's what happens when you do stuff like that that's why you have to be very specific and be like these people have a cultural past that works together in this area yeah. you know you don't say you know, the Lakotas and the Crow have a traditional, you know, heat with each other. Oh, I'm going to group you guys up together and give you guys guns, see how that goes. Yeah, and it, obviously, and the tribal identities of Africa, right, or even the smaller, smaller proto-states are not compatible with what the with what Europe and the United States did, which was turning them into kind of digestible, you know, national re, uh, natural resource areas, right? They right. were more like... It was almost like corporate grounds than it yeah. was actually the creation yeah. of proper states yeah. by the people for their people, mm -hmm. right? So, I mean, there's that aspect of it. And then, you know, the second part of that question, which was what do I find wrong about white activists or non-Native activists that step into these spaces? A lot of people want to talk and not a lot of people want to listen. I find so many instances where people think that they can just input themselves in our space without any context. And they, and this is the big one. They say, well, I'm an indigenous ally. Who gave you that term? Mm -hmm. What have you ever done for us in your life? Yeah. You wore an orange shirt on orange shirt day. Congratulations. Thank you for doing the bare minimum. The right. bare minimum. Right. You posted a red square on MMIW Awareness Day. Wow. You're such an ally. Yeah. Were you fucking getting sprayed with water cannons at Standing Rock? Did you ever in your entire life think about what your family has done against indigenous people and tried to rectify that? Mm -hmm. Have you reached out to tribal governments on, you know, the land in which you own and been like, hey, I have this land. Can I rematriate it to you? At the end of the day, a lot of these people are just bourgeois white people that are like, I want to get into activism because I have never not been the loudest person in my space and I need to be in charge of everything. And yeah. That is something I hate. Yeah, and it's also like we've talked about resume building. Mm -hmm. Oh, look what I did. Right. Look what I right. did. A white person did. I, I got a um a membership email not, not long ago from this person that said that they were a uh a white queer indigenous sovereignty advocate. What can I do to help? <laughs> My response to that is why don't you read some of the material we have? um support us financially mm -hmm. right there's your option we're not going to give you space to join because we're tired of having our spaces polluted with mm -hmm. people bringing in all of these white ideologies onto our continent and being like oh well this is the right way you guys are stupid i'm an indigenous ally i think you're wrong <laughs> so i'm i'm certified indigenous ally thank you um i'm a member of a fairly recognized indigenous ally band okay we don't need that. We're part of the Rainbow Family, You're right? I don't. I don't want to hear from you. Yeah, go sit over there. You have been seen for five hundred and twenty-nine years, white lady. You know. Um, yeah. So that's that's a big problem. So yeah. I, I appreciate groups like um, like your group uh, who 
are listening and learning and not trying to use us as a token of advancement. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of the day, the medicine wheel covers all of the four different races that are on, you know, the earth that we share. And we each have an obligation to governing and understanding one another so that we can live in harmony. You yeah. Know? Um, we can't do it without each other, but there shouldn't be one leader about the whole movement. You know what right. I mean? Like we are all one struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, and that reminds me of the idea of, and people have this misconception, right? People like to whitewash it, but the, the, the rainbow coalition, mm-hmm. right? People like, Oh, you know, and the black Panthers let it. But when you read people's personal narrations, you know, uh, the hillbilly, um, Oh, hillbilly. I'm trying to remember the book. It's by high Thurman. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but he talked about the young Patriots, which was the white organization. They're like, no, the idea that the black Panthers let us mm-hmm. is a kind of a, ad hoc they're putting that on to the, the 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 past when it was they were under a a coalition in which each organization was autonomous but could come together for those those intersecting goals right, right. for them it was class struggle and mm-hmm. socialism but also in the chicago at that time like poor appalachians and people they had their own struggle right that was different from that of the black or the or the puerto rican mm-hmm. right but again, they came together for those for the common goals, right? right? And so you talked about the the medicine wheel. Do you want to talk about how that relates to what you talked about the tree of life? And you know, you talked about sure. my organization, which is war, white against racism, and kind of what we are kind of making a model off of, and what that mm-hmm. looks like to you, and maybe how it can be applied on a national scale. Sure. So you know, I think that a lot of the reason that you see people being like you know, the Black Panther Party led this or whatever is because Western culture inherently believes that there has to be a head. There cannot be an equal council of people that mm-hmm. is foreign. That's a foreign idea to a lot of um, super colonial minded capitalists uh, that live on this continent and in Europe. Um, so when I talk about the Tree of Life Coalition, the Tree of Life Coalition, there is a prophecy uh, by uh, Crazy Horse, and it says that he sees in a time of seven generations, a red nation will rise again and it will heal, it'll heal a sick and dying world, a world full of broken promises and separations. Uh, I see a time when all of the races of the world will unite again and dance under the sacred tree of life. So that's what we call the, the tree of life uh, coalition, the tree of life community. Um, you know, we're looking at uh, indigenous, white, black and uh, Asian organizations that believe in self-determination and liberation for any of our various peoples in whatever context that means Mm -hmm. and that means that we all share equal quadrants of the medicine wheel right so the only way that we can maintain an equal balance is if we are all supporting each other yeah and no one is taking the the jump on something you know what i mean um reconnection to your identity who you are deconstructing things like like deconstructing whiteness, mm-hmm. deconstructing the idea of there is a chosen race of people that is supposed to lead the entire world. You know what I mean? Right. Um, it's finding ways for all of our communities to heal in support of one another in exactly. a healthy way. You yeah. know what I mean? It's there is no leader, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's we as a people are leading together. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the tree of life uh, community in a nutshell. You know, we are looking for other organizations that believe in self-determination, uh, that believe in supporting one another, that are looking to help in fighting against the colonial struggle. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are trying to organize just 
almost like a committee or a council that we can just come together and we can air grievances and we can work together and we can mm -hmm. um, utilize traditional means of conflict resolution so that we can ensure that going forward, our peoples from our various groups, you know, we grow up in a sense of love with one another instead of animosity. I feel like like communities like ours, there is a lot of people that grow up in their own communities and they are oriented towards hating each other, um, especially poor whites and a lot of times poor blacks as well. And it's like, and it's obviously a different experience because it's a lot of trauma response from the things that did happen to African-American people. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, all of us working together and finding ways to deconstruct where we get into like the, the right wing radicalization of people is super important. Yes. Um, you know, it's very easy to fall into dangerous fascist groups here if you are a member yeah. of the Caucasian race. Um, yeah. I've seen multitudes of people I've grown up with end up in that sort of that pipeline type of. So thing, we yeah. need to find ways in our communities that we can combat that from every angle because yeah. there is right wing extremism in all of our communities. Yes. We just have to find ways that we can combat that and offer a more peaceful alternative amongst each other. That's not obviously not peaceful against the system. It's peaceful amongst, amongst the people. people. Exactly. Yes, and that's obviously don't complain. So that's what war is about, right? And we talk. You talk about deconstructing things. Like talks about like deconstructing whiteness, and mm -hmm. we talked about this and the Roe versus Wade rally. This came up about the ACLU with a black woman talking about, it's like, I'm tired of white people asking me what they can do. It's like, why don't you go talk to white people and figure out what does and doesn't work? It's like, right. you know, and you talk about, you're like, I don't argue with white people anymore. Yeah. Like, it's kind of the role of, like, organize your own. That's the principle of the tree of life mm -hmm. to me, you know, and we've talked about this. It's organize your own, but also come together for that exactly. common movement. So, like, and not expecting the OAA to come into either white, black, or Asian spaces to educate. Unless you're, and it's one thing to be invited, it's another right. to be invasive. You have to just jump in. Right. And especially in a, a culture in which whiteness is, allows a higher level of social capital. That's right. why you see groups that, you know, maybe they are originally for people of color, then you like white people in, but because the social net elevates those opinions naturally, that's why they get taken over yeah. by whites that's or by whiteness or white, the white lens. That's actually why we had to, we had to close enrollment for the OIA to indigenous people only because we kept getting basically uh, white liberals, white socialists that were coming into our space and they were playing this whole ally shtick. And, mm -hmm. you know, I have the original story of the old Native American Student Association at State University where um, it was originally led by Native students. Native students were the ones that were making the shots and they were doing the things that they were doing. Native students started to graduate. White students that were allies took over and before you know it they're dressing up as native students like native mascots and they're marching in bloomington's parades you know what i mean so there's a whole different aspect to being an ally you don't have to be central in our community to be an ally be here be support be back up when we need you but mm -hmm. don't force yourself don't try to make yourself the front of everything stop yeah. saying things like i'm a black ally i'm an indigenous ally stop saying that stuff yeah we know if you are or if you aren't i don't give a shit what kind of label you apply to yourself mm -hmm. if you come up to me and say you're an indigenous ally but you think this i'm i shut you off the second you said ally that's yeah. that's out yeah um does it get like you said who gave you that like are you nuts right. are you just coming in right you can't right. just you can't just say oh i'm an indigenous ally unless you have earned that designation that is not that's a title of honor that's something that you did you achieved that's not something that you just can say like 
it's <laughs> you can't just call yourself a general in the army if you haven't done stuff. You know what I mean? Like yeah. you have to accomplish things to get titles like that, you know. Yeah. And again, it's like when people say I'm an advocate, it's like is your level of advocacy is that you give lip service yeah, or social service. media service? It's like like not to say those things are bad, like posting those things, being aware is good, but it's like if that is what you qualify and self-identify as an advocate, right? That's ridiculous and it's it's abusive. Um, and so let's see here if any more questions I had, because we've been jumping around as I'm trying to keep up, trying to connect points that you're, you're making a point out of. Uh, yeah. So what current hot topic issues are you seeing as a major threat right now? Obviously there's a broad issue of land bat and decolonization, but are there specific policies that are going on? We've talked about the indigenous, indigenous children's welfare act. If I remember that correctly, do you want to talk about that? Cause you, I know you've aired your, re that that's a fear or an anger that you've got going on and anything else that comes to mind. Yeah. So ICWA is a program where it's called the Indian child welfare act. That's the legislative name of it. And it is a program where essentially if you are, let's say, let's say, you know, I'm federally recognized. I marry a non-native person in an effort to maintain the culture of the child you know if i was to get a divorce and this is assuming that i'm obviously a good parent i'm not you know i don't have a bad criminal background they're not, they're not just going to give you your it's kid. not just because you're native you know yeah you have to be a good parent otherwise but it's preferable to put them in the native parents home because there's no guarantee that that white parent is going to support and uplift their cultural identity mm -hmm. um, but it's also more than that it's let's say i was to have a child and i died and my kid needed to go to a home what ICWA does is, by law, the tribal government is the one who's determining that custody. Is it like a jurisdiction? It's jurisdiction. And okay. so it'll go to one of my enrolled family members. If they can't take them, it'll go to someone enrolled in my tribe. If they can't take them, it's someone enrolled in a similar tribe, so maybe Choctaw, Seminole, or Muscogee Creek. And if they can't take them, it goes to a federally uh, enrolled, just indigenous like household. Um, okay. Some states with their state-recognized tribes have ICWA policies, too. Mm, but that varies between states. And... It varies between okay. states. Um, but also, like, let's say I'm Choctaw and I marry a Navajo woman and I have a kid with her and my kid is enrolled Choctaw. That means I get precedence because he's, he's enrolled from that culture. Okay. So it's essentially the legislation was passed as a way to ensure that Native kids can grow up in the culture that they are a part of and this then so this has come under fire recently yeah what do you do you know the, what the context do you the, speak to that context the supreme court uh is now looking to overturn ICWA because they believe that there is not enough of a difference between native people and american culture anymore so there's not a pressing reason to separate them from the adoption poll and my biggest fear that i always i always get worried about this because you see it all that this happens all the time to like children that are adoptees from China or children that are adoptees from like African yeah. countries. Yeah. Look at my, you know, look at my red baby. Look at my little chief. Oh, look at his war bonnet. Hoya, hoya. Look at him, you know. Um, that made me cringe. If, if I see someone do that with a native kid, I might have to arm up a war party. That, that would, would piss me off to no extent. Um, you know, and there's, I think, I think the real solution, if you want to look at like a legislative option is open up ICWA to unrecognized and state recognized natives too, like, or like open up the pool of ICWA people that want to be in the program, but do not give these kids to, you know, hippies that are going to turn them into like, try to turn them into tokens. Like, look at my little native kid. I called him walking feather. Fuck you.
And of course, you talked about and that's a solution, right? Is expand that pool. But of course, the Supreme Court doesn't want to do that because no, they're they're they're, they're assimilationist mm-hmm. and continuation yep. of cultural genocide. Yep. Because if you can remove the kids, which there's a history of that, obviously, yeah. is would you almost see that the overturn of ICWA is a continuation of those child removing policies? Well, I mean, you know, the residential school system never truly ended in the sure. United States. You know, we still have problems with. Um, child welfare services taking our kids away from us and placing them in white homes. Um, this is big in Canada. Mm-hmm. Canada's indigenous women literally have children at the hospital, and then you know they might wake up from a nap, and their kids already been taken by child welfare services because the hospital said, "Oh, she was she came in drunk or something like that." Like the the national government of Canada, their health service will literally lie so indigenous kids can be taken. Um, it's so bad that there's something in Canada they refer to as there was a 60s scoop, which was like that. Then there was the millennium scoop for people that are about our age. Mm-hmm. Um, they are literally getting put into what is essentially modern day residential schools where they are going out and like working at like camps and they are doing woodworking as like 12 year old little kids. And, you know, they're getting injured and things of that nature. The system starts early for taking our children from us. Uh, and, you know, if they are taken from our communities through ICWA being dis- like dissolved, it's like that's it's it's already killing off the next generation of our culture. Mm-hmm. That's so important to us. And you know, I just mentioned something that we can cooperate on and find a solution. And it's like you said, the government doesn't want to hear it. So I'm mm-hmm. tired of offering alternative solutions. My mm-hmm. alternative solution is now fucking go back to Europe. You can go set this up. Somewhere in Europe, go find your own little space and fuck off. Mm-hmm. We are tired of being a piece of gum that is on the bottom of your shoe. We are ready to reassert ourselves as sovereign people. And that doesn't mean that, you know, that's not an ethno state. It's not like, you know, only natives stay. We are finding methods in which people can all stay in healing. But the fact of the matter is, is we need sovereignty over our land because we know it the best. And there are some people that will refuse that. Exactly. They are American supremacists. They are white supremacists exactly. that will say, you know, this, you know, the manifest destiny of Christian nationalism is incompatible with indigenous and black autonomy. Exactly. 100%. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it's like, yeah, some people will not be allowed. Right. They're incompatible and they are dangerous. They're, some of them are incompatible now with like how the United States operates. Because that hasn't gone far enough. Like you see, you see like people that become like the governor of states that are black or they're women or they're other people of color. And you have white racists that are immediately like, wow, this isn't the America I grew up in. Yeah, the America you grew up in is was a open-faced fascist dictatorship this one is just adding a couple little puppets to the to the a smiley face on it smiley face and like a a blm sticker and a pride flag oh yeah coexist coexist (laughs) coexist yeah coexist in integration and death yeah right right so another thing is and this is to me another hot topic thing but the role of indigenous struggle in peoples in the combating climate change Mm -hmm. in the environmental crisis So I see this come up in various ways, like the conservation uh, typically enforces colonial relations. So I think of, oh, like, for example, it's kind of like, oh, and eagles are, you know, endangered. So in some way it tries to Mm -hmm. use as as a bludgeon against religious autonomy or they're like, oh, these deer, you can't hunt or whatever. But then, of course, that it's enforced on sustainable hunting methods that indigenous people have used on this continent for tens of thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Right. but ironically, we find a context like hunting, tree burning, et cetera, that these people, you know, of whatever stripe across all of the continent, right, or even in Africa, 
or in Europe with the indigenous people that still exist there, mm-hmm. that when they are removed from the equation, the, the environmental crisis has become worsened. But when right. those practices are put into practice, mm-hmm. you know, they work. So, for example, all the fires that are going on, right? The world is heating up in a context of colonialism right. that could have been prevented. First of all, colonialism never happened. Right. But if they had at least listened to certain if you want to call them environmental shepherding strategies or land strategies, yeah. right? Um, do you want to speak to that at all? Yeah. So indigenous people worldwide make up uh, 15% or less of the world population, uh, but they account for 85% of protection for biodiversity. Right. So, you know, our original ways of land stewardship, you know, we don't see the land as a commodity. It's not something that is made for us to just continually pull from. We have a living relationship with the world um you know when we hang out we go on hikes or whatever in the woods you notice i'm talking to the trees i'm talking to the animals it's because i am taking up their space and they are providing for me Mm -hmm. uh, either a beautiful walk or you know they might provide me food or they may provide me with air the water might provide me with sustenance for life Mm -hmm. you know i thank her because the mother earth is in all essence our mom she is the person that is taking care of us we don't just pillage her resources and use them to make tvs and and ship them all across the world or we don't just we're not the corporation that america is where we're just pulling resources as much as possible and eating and eating and throwing back to england you know that's not how we roll you know and so when you live in a corporate culture like western culture typically is you get lots and lots of extreme decimation of land and resource because they just never stop. They're always cranking it out. They don't take what they need. They take what they want so that they can get more money so that mm-hmm. they can line their pockets. Yep. We take what we need and then we give offering back to nature. Thank you for giving this. And, you know, when we die, we return to the life cycle there's indigenous tribes that you know the traditional death is we take your body and we lay your corpse out in the woods and we let the animals consume mm-hmm. you and you go back to the earth mm-hmm. um as opposed to the weird injections and you're putting a polluting box yeah, in the ground yeah. right so you know we all people have a intrinsic connection to the earth indigenous people just haven't forgotten it Mm-hmm. everyone is clearly indigenous to somewhere you know there's not any synthetic humans despite what reactionary belief might have you think mm-hmm. um all humans are indigenous to somewhere and we all have a connection with the earth whether it's you know at the front of our identity or it's latent mm-hmm. um submerged like under yeah, the it's, it is our responsibility to find ways to connect with it for the health of earth for the health of ourselves and for the health of each other. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't build a healthy relationship in totality when you are de-centering the earth. Mm -hmm. That is, that is us. That is all we are is products of the earth Mm -hmm. living amongst the earth. And the idea that, you know, we exist and you know, it's not even true because everything's natural. It all exists in the natural context. When people say, Oh, we're divorced from nature or, or what have you it's like because that's that itself is reactionary because you're like okay by denying the rights to you know the idea of denying water has a right right or that trees have a right mm-hmm. you're it's unsustainable that logic is unsustainable and will extend to on principle unsustainable actions exactly right for example 
the course we're going on right now is a direct product of colonialism right right and turn and on a global scale this isn't just like europe is colonized one european colonial projects colonize another european colonial project right this is a global context mm -hmm. and that's why you know you talk about having relationships across the world because decolonizing quote unquote just the western hemisphere that's a project that's in my opinion, probably be unsustainable without a global yeah. right. Yeah. Because then you said the backlash that would come when the when the oh, yeah. when the empire falls. Yeah. Right. Until unless there's a movement in those ally Anglo countries. Oh yeah. Right. It, it's it's actually interesting. I, I just saw this conversation happen the other day. This is a little off script, but um, you know, people say, well, other countries don't deal with things that America's dealing with, and it's like, okay, not. The majority of countries are not settler states. Yeah. The majority of countries are either places that were formerly occupied by settler states or they are the like colonial government. Mm -hmm. You know? Um the United States, Canada, most of what they call Latin America. I mean, even Latin America is a lot different because a lot of the people there are mixed with indigenous blood or they just have a different identity, you know, different level. But if you look yeah. at the Anglo countries, New Zealand, Australia, Canada, uh, United States, their specific brand of settler colonialism is unique to that identity. Even England still practices it on Ireland. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and Celtic states, you mm -hmm. know, but that's, that's why you don't see the comparisons because the United States is a settler country. It is a corporation on this land <laughs> and what do what do leftists want to do with it yeah so I, I keep stealing this quote from you because it's so good but you cannot reform an evil corporation by making it a co-op you need to burn down the corporation yeah you need to throw it away it, it cannot be you know you cannot answer for the crimes that the corporation committed by letting yeah. the, the people own it yeah and apparently i think i subconsciously stole that quote from someone it was a black advocate advocate i remember who it was but i've heard the quote is you can't democratize the plantation you discovered yeah. it. You discovered it. I just kind of, I colonized someone's throat. But I, it's like it's similar to that in that context of what people, what black, black, internationalists and Pan Africans. So you don't democratize right. the plantation. You burn the plantation. Right. You right? burn the plantation because the context exactly. of the plantation is an oppressive one. The same in the United States, founded on corporate interests and feeding natural resources and profits back to England. Mm -hmm. While now the United States has taken up the role of global empire, right? You can't democratize that. You can't have a USSA, right? Right. There will be no red United States in the regards to some socialist project. It doesn't make it any less a colony. Yeah. It doesn't make it any less. But don't worry, you'll get Alaska. Yeah. No, you don't don't worry. We'll we'll stick you guys in the middle of like uh, we'll give you Alcatraz. You guys can all fit. Sure. And then so in a related question. Because uh, this is an interesting one we had when we were on a hike the other day, because this is a kind of a primitivist-esque podcast, is the notion of what you see as a critique of technology and what's considered civilization. Because you have a really interesting view I've never heard expressed before. Do you want to speak to that a little bit? Sure. So I think um, the specific, uh, like, I guess, what, are you getting behind, like, the anti-civ sort of? Yeah. Okay. So... In essence, I'm not anti-technology because we haven't seen technology explored really outside of a colonial capitalist framework. Mm -hmm. um, and I do have people that are within the OIA. Like, I should I should probably clarify, the OIA is not like you 100% agree with everything that's here. Mm -hmm. When I talk about OIA policy, you know, we have the main policy, which is the belief system of what needs to happen. But there is 
you know, but hundreds of different groups that come out of that in like, this is what, you know, I believe about technology. This is what I believe about what should happen to cities. This is where totally. people should go. There is tons of different subsets, you know, it's mm-hmm. an all encompassing group. It's of, not a monolith. A bunch of different, exactly. A bunch of different ideologies. So I, if you were to read like the organization's, you know, manifesto, there is nothing in here that says if you believe that this, this, and this is, is good. I mean, unless you're talking about like colonial, actual colonial, right? Like, I do directly say if you believe the United States is an answer for our people, you're stupid. But hmm. I don't go on to say, like, if you um, want to return to how our ancestors lived, you are this. And I don't I also don't say if you believe in, you know, uh, communism is a solution, then blah, blah, blah. You know, we are all encompassing for indigenous autonomy. So I sorry, that was long winded. But hmm. when I think about technology, I just don't think it's been explored in how our people would be able to create and develop technologies from the ethic of the indigenous, indigenous from the indigenous ethic. OK, um, intrinsically, you know, we are very communal people. We care about each other and we don't have as strict of hierarchy in a lot of cases in a lot of those cultures. Mm-hmm. So I know a lot of the anarcho primitist sort of uh, beliefs regarding technology is like, you know, it gets bad when there's a point where technology can only be utilized by specialists that mm-hmm. dictate yes. how it's taught. It's based on the idea of you have specialists and then you have a division of labor that is usually highly gendered and highly stratified with, right. you know, it's one thing people say, well, well, certain indigenous people had chiefs. It's like, bro, that's not even comparable to the type of hierarchy and yeah, the level of, you know, anti-humanism that exists now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, when I think about what indigenous technology could look like, it's not even comprehensible compared to what we see here. Sure. Um, sure. Because when you think about what an indigenous society, quote unquote, needs, and I use that in like a very loose term, if you think about what like an indigenous nation would need in terms of, you know, um, efficacy for the land or working with each other it's just not comparable to what like a place like the united states needs where they're pumping out stuff to make people basically better workers that's not our way of life the way of life for indigenous people our main purpose in life is to have fun and to love it's not to fucking work (laughs) you know not to be a little wage slave We, we work in our community for each other yeah don't work for money so that we can um buy crazy things we work like i go and hunt to make sure that the women and the children have food so that they can farm or they can build houses or you know we can Mm. you know do all these various things yeah um something that popped into mind is you work for each other not for someone else exactly when you work for someone for a wage it's because someone above you is exploiting that wage Mm -hmm. to buy his next fucking whatever exactly when you work for each other that's a very different meaning different context different meaning exactly yeah sure sure yeah because you talked about it i thought it was a super interesting topic that we had because you know we might disagree but i still think it's an interesting thing that could be explored just because it hasn't right the technology we have is out of a colonial context that seeks to dominate but not exist within harmony it's designed like even like we look at our smartphones you know on the basis you know the original phone was designed so you could communicate with one another across you know a distance um the way that they are now is they are designed so that they can collect your data and sell it so that they can continue making capital so that people can make apps that are more geared towards you. And they make all these colorful, fancy apps so that they can do that better. 
-hmm. or so they can sell you extra services that you would never see something like this i mean you might see a phone so that i could like i don't know call my grandma or something <laughs> but you know you're not going to see something where it's like uh amazon prime like switch to the button i can go buy like a i don't know a cheese grater or something <laughs> that's not something that would really develop out of indigenous contexts mm -hmm. um just what are the needs like you said what are the needs of exactly. a corporate society what are the needs of an indigenous society exactly sure exactly sure so um so yeah in, in essence I have different beliefs than other people in my org. So when I answer that specific question, that's a, you. That's, that's a me thing. Sure. It's not OIA. OIA, like I said, is welcome to all sorts of people in that, you know, yeah. sort of uh, ideological difference. Okay, sure. So the last question I have before I kind of open up, if there's anything you want to talk about is what documentaries, articles, books, any sort of media would you recommend to people to investigate to learn more? Not just about the OIA, because sure. I know there's publications you guys have on your site to read and to learn mm -hmm. about. And if you are interested, instead of being like, I'm an indigenous advocate, what can I do? It's maybe go and read the resources that you are freely providing, mm -hmm. right? But to learn about the historic struggle and the ongoing struggle of indigenous peoples, both here on occupied territory as well as globally. I have to give a disclaimer because this, I mean, so read and watch things from indigenous people that is the most important part um but here's what you shouldn't do because i see so many people do this it's starting to piss me off people will watch let's say indian horse or they'll like read a book about residential school and they'll say i'm traumatized by this i'm traumatized by reading this so i know your pain you've had that personally right i've had so um there's big talks about christianity and the native community and i won't get into that but I've personally seen non-natives say things like, well, I'm super traumatized by learning about residential schools, so I don't see why natives are Christians. That is not your discussion to have. You cannot be traumatized by reading about something that didn't happen to your people. Right. Like it might be uncomfortable to read, you can but be being uncomfortable and not tra traumatized are not the same thing. Exactly. <laughs> um, like when I learned about the Holocaust when I was younger, you know, I can't be traumatized by it because I didn't experience it and it didn't affect anyone in my immediate family at all. I can be discomforted and I can feel sad and I can feel angry and I can feel like I want to help the community. Which you should. That should be the that. reaction. But I can't be like, oh, now I'm traumatized because I read about this. So, you know, if you're Christian, you're stupid. That's not your, you have no place mm -mm. in that. And I see people doing that almost with the Roe versus Wade with, um, Oh, uh, Scotus uh, Thomas mm -hmm. in the way that they're kind of almost like using black humor and black commentary, like from, you know, white people making like, oh, Uncle Ruckus. It's yeah. like, uh, you have no say. In yeah. It, it just that reminded me because I see the line that's almost kind of similar to what you're talking about. I think that people always want to center what's happening to them to the point where they don't really care about the actual effects of those things mm -hmm. it, it all goes around to this what i call like resume builder activists like they want to use your struggle and your trauma so that they can get ahead and at the end of the day they are just as bad as um ceos that exploit like their employees emotional physical and mental labor so that they can get ahead like they are exploiting us and our trauma the things that happen to our people as a means of just making themselves out to be like a more well-rounded uh 
more palatable person mm-hmm. for like a left-wing movement yeah and uh i'm sick and tired of it so if you're gonna read a book or watch a movie make sure it's by indigenous people but i don't want to see you saying you were traumatized by it because yeah. that's gonna cause some problems yeah <laughs> and I just put stuff in the description because there's something you've told me to watch because mm-hmm. uh, i know there's the there's the Barry My Heart Wendy movie. That's a good movie. And then there was the it's the the it, hockey one. I'm Indian Horse. Indian, Indian Horse. I will put all that in the description because yeah. those are ones. Um, I've seen Indian Horse and that one's pretty. That's I will call it intense. You actually watched it? Yeah. It's, yeah. That's yeah. That was I wasn't ready for that. I'm a pretty low and I've talked about that. I'm a pretty low empathy person, but holy fuck. Yeah. You know what I mean? I I've uh, I haven't seen uh, Barry My Heart Wendy yet. That one's. Yeah, if you're as an as an in-prim, I think that you you will be very saddened by yeah. that one. That one yeah. is tough to pass. So, so there there's been some media I've been consuming, uh, both at the suggestion of Malapa, but as well as just my own investigation. I can put and I can suggest that it's both by indigenous creators and not books and media and other media light, because uh, I know I people always feel like, well, well, you know, you need to read this. Well, not everyone has time to read. Not everyone has the same literacy skills that you do. Right. And movies and audio things are great. They're great learning. Why why can't podcasts be good? Exactly. Right? That not everything has to be a theory heavy fucking learning session. So yeah, I'll definitely put stuff in the description. Um, so if there's anything that you want to talk about, if you want to have an open platform that you want to speak about, because uh, we're at about an hour and fifteen minutes. And if you want to do an open thing, and if not, we can cut this out, but uh if you want to do an open kind of forum with between you and I or just talk or vent, sure. we can turn that into a second episode as well. Because uh, at this point, it's weird because we're going to have to cut it kind of weird. Yeah. Because uh, anything over an hour tends to be like, tends to lose viewership pretty quick. So if this is what we can maybe cut a little bit. Yeah. And if you want to talk and just give you on space, we can do that too. 